Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. Movie House Concessions on the MHN Podcast Network, where each episode we pull a random film from the display case to see if it tastes as fresh as the day it was released. And this is a special Cinema Day comic book edition. I'm Patrick. And I am Chad. And this month we are reviewing 1994's The Crow with Brandon Lee. And that's all really that fucking matters now, doesn't it? (laughs) So, oh, come on. Ernie Hudson's in this movie. Ernie Hudson is it? Yes, that's true. Ernie Hudson has uh, something to do with it because they had to fill up the film with other actors. <laughs> so, yes. All right. Uh, and Chad, do you have a summary of this classic film? I, I do. I do. All right. Well, let me open up with a quote from the movie, then I'll get into my summary. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes something so bad happens that a terrible sadness is carried with it and the soul can't rest. Then sometimes, just sometimes, the crow can bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. October 30th in Detroit is known as Devil's Night. The crime lord, Top Dollar, enlists his minions to set various pieces of real estate ablaze and murder anyone who resists them to promote fear throughout the city. On this night, Sergeant Daryl Albrecht investigates a crime scene where a young couple, Eric Draven and Shelley Webster, are brutally attacked by Top Dollar's gang. Shelley was raped and beaten until Eric came home, saving his fiancé's life. Eric was shot, stabbed, and thrown from their apartment window, ultimately dying in the street. Shelly initially survives the attack, but dies after 30 hours of fighting for her life in the hospital. Before Sergeant Albrecht heads to the hospital to stand by Shelly during her 30-hour fight, he has the unfortunate duty of telling a young girl, Sarah, that both of her friends are going to be gone forever. We flash forward one year where Sarah is visiting Eric and Shelly's graves, but Sarah is not the only visitor. A lone crow sits atop Eric's gravestone and begins to peck away at the monument. Magically, Eric's grave opens and he rises from his resting place. The crow leads Eric back to the ransacked apartment where he and Shelley were attacked. Eric has painful flashbacks of that horrific night, but realizes he has become invincible and has the Beastmaster-esque power of seeing through the eyes of the crow. Eric paints his face to resemble a clown mask he and Shelley owned, dresses in all black, then heads out to seek revenge on those who murdered his fiancée. The crow leads Eric to one of the four gang members who murdered him, Tintin. Tintin, an expert at using knives, does everything he can to cut down Eric, but Eric is able to turn the tide. Eric uses Tintin's own knives to persuade the butcher into confessing to his crimes, 
then places the knives in all of Tintin's vital organs, killing him. Eric takes Tintin's long black leather jacket to at the end of the battle, completing Eric's iconic wardrobe. Eric makes his way to visit a local pawn shop owner named Gideon. Tintin had pawned Shelly's engagement ring at Gideon's shop. Eric successfully retrieved the ring just before getting information about Tintin's fellow gang member, Fun Boy, and his love nest at a bar called The Pit. To send out a warning to Top Dollar, Gideon's shop is blown up and put out of business forever. On his way to the pit, Eric stops by Albrecht's apartment to fill him in on who he really is and his mission to get revenge. Eric learns of Shelley's 30-hour struggle by simply touching Albrecht. As Eric leaves the apartment building, he saves Sarah from getting hit by a car. At this point, the young girl knows Eric is quote-unquote alive, even if she doesn't fully believe it. Eric immediately pays a visit to Fun Boy and his drugged-up girlfriend, Darla. Fun Boy shoots Eric three times, but is unable to mortally wound him. Eric gets the gun from Fun Boy and shoot the gangster. Eric then saves Darla from the morphine she injected into her system, then sends her on her way out of the pit. Eric tells Darla to go be a good mother to her daughter, who turns out to be Sarah. Eric turns his attention back to Fun Boy and kills him off by injecting him with syringes filled with lethal drugs. Gideon goes to Top Dollar's lair, where he rats out Eric to the crime lord. Top Dollar, his half-sister-slash-lover Micah, along with their enforcer Grange, prepare war with Eric. But Top Dollar finishes off Gideon first by stabbing the pawnbroker through the throat with a long sword, then shooting him for good measure. Eric sets his sights on the foreman of Top Dollar's gang, T-Bird. T-Bird and Skank, the remaining members of the quartet that killed Shelly, get trailed to a convenience store where Eric kidnaps T-Bird. T-Bird is subsequently taken to a fast and, on a fast and furious car ride to the docks where Eric blows up the car and the criminal. Skank is allowed to live for another day, but he must report to Top Dollar about Eric's activities. Grange goes to the cemetery to find Eric's grave empty, so Top Dollar calls a meeting with all of his street warriors to confirm their Devil's Night's plans. Sarah goes to Eric and Shelley's apartment to tell Eric about her quote-unquote born-again mother and thank him for saving her life. Eric reveals himself to Sarah and promises to protect the girl from all evil that may come her way. Eric leaves Sarah to interrupt Top Dollar's Legion of Doom meeting to get revenge on Skank. Eric is eventually shot by the multitude of Top Dollar soldiers who attended the meeting, but he is able to kill all of them, including Skank, who gets tossed out of the gangster's building. Top Dollar, Grange, and Micah are able to escape and work on a way to kill the dead man once and for all. Micah tells her associates the crow will need to die because it is Eric's connection to the powers making him, op him omnipotent. Eric decides to return to his grave now that Shelley's killers have been murdered. He and Sarah say their goodbyes, and he passes on Shelley's engagement ring to his young friend. However, this won't be the last time they will see each other on this night. Top Dollar has Sarah kidnapped by Grange, 
who takes a girl to a nearby church where Top Dollar and Micah set a trap for Eric. The crow leads Eric to the church, but is shot and wounded by Grange as it flies into the church. The magic powers Eric received from the crow are now negated, allowing him to be injured by gunshots. Just when Top Dollar, Grange, and Micah take the upper hand, in comes Sergeant Albrecht, who arrives and opens fire, saving the day just before getting wounded himself. Micah grabs hold of the grounded crow, wanting to pull its powers for her own dastardly deeds. However, the crow uses the strength it has in its pecker to stab Micah, claw her eyes, and send her falling down a bell tower to a much-deserved death. Top Dollar takes Sarah through the bell tower to the roof to escape, just as Albrecht recovers to kill Grange. Eric chases after Top Dollar, and they struggle on the roof of the church. Top Dollar confesses to Eric that he ordered the gang to murder Shelley, and Eric, which further enrages Eric, grabs a hold of Top Dollar and magically passes on Shelley's 30 hours of pain and suffering, which he had earlier obtained from Albrecht. The overwhelming pain causes Top Dollar to fall from the roof and become impaled on a metal cross. Eric saves Sarah, bringing her safely to the ground. Shortly after the battle, Albrecht is taken to the hospital where he is treated for his wounds, and Eric returns to his grave for a permanent rest. Shelley's spirit arrives at their grave sites to reward Eric for avenging their deaths. Now the couple can rest in peace together. Sarah comes to the cemetery to say goodbye to her friends yet again. The crow meets her at Eric's gravesite, returning Shelley's engagement ring to her. The young girl will carry the symbol of Eric and Shelley's undying love with her forever. The end. All right. The Crow was released on May 13th, 1994, Friday the 13th, uh, the same day as Crooklyn, Trading Mom, and When a Man Loves a Woman, same month as Clean Slate, Being Human with Robin Williams, Maverick, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Little Buddha, The Flintstones, and Chad's all-time favorite film, Three Ninjas Kick Back. Uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, it is better than Beverly Hills Cop 3, so I do love it. Uh, it grossed in the uh, just over $50 million in the United States, uh, just over $94 million worldwide, making it the 24th highest grossing film in the U.S. in 1994, right behind such films such as Four Weddings and a Funeral, the Little Rascals and Naked Gun 33 and a third, The Final Insult, and right in front of Natural Born Killers, Angels in the Outfield, and Little Women. IMDb has The Crow ranked at 7.5 out of 10. Uh, the Crow has been ranked number 37 on IGN's Top 100 Comic Book Heroes, and I think that's more of the comic book character, not the movie. Uh, 2008 Empire Magazine placed the film at number 468 on their top 500 movies of all time list. It was followed by three sequels, uh, the crow city of angels in 1996, the crow salvation in 2000 and the crow wicked prayer in 2005. It was also uh, turned into a television series in 1998 through 1999 ran for 22 episodes. And that was the, the crow stairway to heaven uh, plans for a remake are still continuing. Even at this moment, as we speak, Previously, Jason Momoa had been attached and has backed out of the project, but now uh, other 
people are trying to develop a full remake of the original film or the original graphic novel, if you will. And Rotten Tomatoes has it at 84% critics and 90% audience. And so that is the numbers on The Crow. All right. Well, you grew up in the same age I did, Chad. So I am only assuming that you went and saw this in the theater, mainly for the hype over the death of Brandon Lee. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll admit, I did not see it in the theater. I oh, wow. really wanted to, but for whatever reason, I didn't get to it. I did not see it till it came out on VHS. Uh, but surprised I by was that. Very, yeah, I I was very, very anxious to see this one for whatever reason. I didn't get to the theater, like I said. But, yeah, the word around about Brandon's death and everything, I definitely want to make me see it. Plus, it had really, really good word of mouth uh, while I was in the theater. Yeah, no, I this was one I wanted to see. Uh, I, you know, obviously after he passed away, I the the film drew my attention even before it was released. I saw it on opening night. I enjoyed it. Mm. I, you know, I really did enjoy the film at the time. I thought it was a decent film, especially in light of the tragedy that befell it and how they had to work around that. I, I saw it as a extremely simplistic story. You know, it's just a revenge pick, if you will. Uh, with a little bit of a supernatural element and nothing overly complicated. Uh, but for kind of, and it was kind of summer fair on May 13th. It was, you know, it was, it, it's a popcorn fair. And I, I, I really enjoyed it at, at, in its time. And I was unfamiliar. I mean, I was aware of the comic, the graphic novel comic book. Uh, I had huh. not read it prior to seeing the film had actually had not read it until preparing for this podcast. And then I acquired it to read it to draw the comparisons, uh, which I know you did as well. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, the graphic novel written by James O'Barr, and there's been many variations of it or continuing stories of it, but it's the original graphic novel that what the film was based off. So we've got a, a very, very set character uh, and circumstances. However, dramatically different uh, surprisingly dramatically different to me because as I said I thought the film was pretty simplistic but the film really beefs up the little girl really beefs up the cop and kind of uh, uh, molds the cop from two cops in the graphic novel neither one of them having a significant role as Ernie Hudson does in, in this film yeah I agree and it, it is a very very beautiful book I must say I think you and I both have the Crow special edition um, graphic novel, and it is gorgeous. I mean, the artwork for this is gorgeous. I really appreciate, uh, as I've got through it, that it isn't anything really like the movie. It goes totally all over the place, and you learn a lot more about Eric and everybody else. As you said, the Ernie Hudson character somewhat isn't even a part of it. Then sort of the events are out of sequence compared to the movie, which I always appreciate when you read a book and see it totally out of sequence compared to movies or TV shows or TV movies or whatever. So I really, really liked it as I got going through it. You know, the, what I really appreciate about the graphic novel and, and I only presume, and this would be my presumption is that because of Brandon Lee's untimely death, they couldn't do the graphic novel the way it was written and maybe right. they intended it to be the way they finished it. But the graphic novel is two kind of parallel storylines of Eric and Shelley and their love story for each other, which is given equal time with Eric's revenge uh, 
request against the people that killed both her, her Shelley and himself. Mm-hmm. And, and I liked that it was very, it was extremely romantic for a graphic novel. Uh, and, and it gave you a lot more backstory to these characters where Shelley in the film is just, she's the girl who died. And that's about all you know about her. <laughs> exactly. And as I understood that one of the characters in the uh, graphic novel who was sort of like uh, Eric's uh, guide through the the d- realm of death and into the r- modern world once he is resurrected, that character was supposed to be part of the movie, but because of Brandon Lee's death, um, that basically got scrapped altogether. Those scenes, I guess, were never filmed, and so they basically just went with the more simplistic story, as you mentioned, of him being guided by a crow and then having just Albrecht as his um, only real earthly or uh, human uh, counterpart or compatriot, I should say. Yeah, and, and, and even the villains, they're, I mean, they're in the graphic novel, they're just street toughs. I mean, the mm-hmm. top dollar is not even the head of anything. He is just another thug who happens to randomly come up across them in the film. There's, you know, they're sent there by the, the killers are sent there by top dollar to basically strong arm Eric and Shelley into not fighting whatever, I some, whatever real estate transaction or whatever was going the fuck on there. But in the graphic novel, they're just they have a broke down car and the the gang comes across them and then mm-hmm. just you know then ultimately just kills them and eric is the one who has the 30 hours of torture she dies immediately you know yes. and that you know and very graphically and well not graphically they don't show it but you know she gets killed shot through the head and then raped by some of the gang and and that was the in the uh, insult to injury that Eric, the way he is shot and left there on the side of the road, he sees everything. And, and so he, ex, you know, he experiences it and that's what starts off his revenge quest. You know, having read the graphic novel, uh, which one do you prefer? Uh, I actually like the movie. Um, okay. and here's the reason why, because of the way you presented it, I agree with you hundred percent. It's a very straightforward storyline there's not a lot of complexity to it they don't delve overly into any one aspect of it they don't necessarily tell you other than the quote that i read in the summary why he is resurrected they don't get into into details into he and shelly's life which is fine but you know he's in love with her because he comes back and is trying to avenge her death and his death but it's as i'm sitting there watching especially this time it's just so damn simple. It's very straightforward. You feel sympathy for Eric. You understand Sarah. You understand all the bad guys. They didn't, com- especially compared to most modern day movies where you need three hours to tell a new Batman story that <laughs> is a good story. But Jesus Christ, go find an editor. Uh, and, <laughs> and this story was very, very simple. And in what, an hour and 45 minutes, almost two hours maybe, where it is, yeah, about an hour and 40 some odd minutes. It's so simple and it gets done and you're not scratching your head trying to figure out what the hell's going on. They just get right to the chase and you get where you want to go ultimately. You know, I like them both, but I honestly 
would would have liked to have seen the graphic novel adapted uh, pretty pretty closely because I think that that would have been a very interesting film. And as I said, I presume they couldn't because Brandon Lee died and there would be, you know, in the film, he doesn't speak that much and he's a lot, it's always at night and he's a lot in shadow. So they could go and film around him or have stand-ins, but for the romantic scenes, presumably they were never shot um, or maybe there was never any intention to shoot them, but that he, you know, he, once he was dead, then they couldn't work with that. You know, there was nothing they could do and they just had to abandon that element. But I think it really gave a lot more depth to it. Now, I like the idea of that the, the thugs are there to kill them for a reason rather than just happenstance. I Mm -hmm. I didn't like that aspect of the graphic novel. And I liked that there was a big bad. Uh, I, I, it, it just plays better to me, but I guess, Oh, okay. good. No, go ahead. No, one of the things I was going to say is uh, you're talking about being able to shoot certain things. Apparently, and I this is something I watched a lot closer since we were talking about it for the podcast, that I was trying to figure out exactly where the Brandon Lee basically is no longer being shot um, or filmed for the movie. And as I understand it, it's the sequence where the thugs come in to their apartment, break in and rape and kill uh, Shelly and, and then eventually Eric, that the Eric we see in the apartment at that point is not Brandon Lee. It's his stand-ins. So basically that sequence is when Brandon got shot in the filming, which they filmed, I guess, towards the end, if not last. So then if they wanted to go further with the romantic uh, components or try to incorporate he and Shelly's relationship more, I guess they probably could not have gone down that route since uh, that's when Shelley's predominantly in the movie and Brandon is dead at this point, literally. Well, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of sequences where they use stand in. I mean, like when he's walk, when, uh, when he gets out of the grave initially and he's walking down the alleyway, you're not seeing his face. And that's cause it's a stand in when he comes back to the apartment and puts the makeup on his face, that's not him. And when the, I think there's a lightning flash and you see him through the broken window that's not him. Um, that that's done through special effects. Uh, that th- there's a, a tremendous amount with they that they worked around, but it, you know it was interesting. I I don't think as much was filmed for the film as they in, in, they needed to make it because uh, this was supposed to be produced and released by Paramount Pictures. They abandoned it. They let it go, and then you know I don't know Miramax or the Weinstein company or Dimension Films picked it up. And paid to complete it uh, at at that point in time and released what we got. But and I kind of wonder if that's why you have Ernie Hudson's character and you have uh, the little girl character amped up and pl- uh, playing much more importance because otherwise you just only have three quarters of a film because they are really not central to the story in the graphic novel. And I would argue that they're not really that central to the story in the <laughs> film either. Well, yeah, because other than Ernie Hudson being the the passer of the power, if you will, um, of the 30-hour sequence, or since he stood by Shelley during her 30 hours of pain and suffering, I mean, he passes that on, and ultimately the the way we get the final release, he's his, his purpose there is significant, but uh, yeah, he's nothing major. Um, I mean, those scenes where he and his lieutenant are fighting about insubordination and 
this and that and this and that. Those are about meaningless, but it just means that he's a one of the good few good cops probably in a very shitty Detroit uh, where a crime is actually in control. And you just give him a little bit of a backstory to help uh, support his character. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, the the cynical nature of that character. I I find. I mean, he is pretty much the only one that has a character arc because he be, obviously becomes more heroic towards the end of the film, where at the beginning he just lets the crime world run rampant, if you will. You know, he just is jaded to it. Uh, you know, and the little girl, obviously, with having her mother recover from drugs and establish a relationship, there's a character arc. Otherwise, there was nothing really for the characters to do. The oh. um, the main, I mean, Top Dollar is a villain. He's a mustache twirling villain played by Michael Wincott, who played villains a lot in the nineties. And I liked him as a villain, and he wasn't bad in it. I, you know, the little Asian sister. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought that was a little, once again, doesn't exist in the com the graphic novel, and it was just a little bit twisted, and it was like, okay, we're trying to add some dimension to this, but the and even the crow being the source of the power, that's film, not graphic novel. That's not you know that's not the the central point in the film, uh, but I. you know it was you know, obviously Eric doesn't have an arc other than he gets revenge and then. I guess dies a second time, if you will. Uh, yep, yep. And but the only characters are the supporting characters that have any kind of meaningful arc. I mean, I even love Tony Todd. I love John Polito. Um, I, I mean, these are all actors I really like in other projects, and I'm glad they're in it because they sort of give their minor characters some <laughs> gravity recognition. But yeah, there's nothing really to them. Yeah, I, I've always liked Tony Todd. I, I think he's an underappreciated actor, and I know he's primarily known for Candyman, uh, which I mm -hmm. don't necessarily think is by any stretch of the imagination his best role. But I remember first seeing him in the Star Trek series playing Worf's brother, and I've and actually then eventually playing uh, Jake Sisko as an old man, which I thought was one of the better performances. But for in Deep Space Nine, but I've always liked him as an actor. I really appreciated him. I for, I had completely forgotten he was in this film. It's been so long since I've seen it. Yeah, and I must admit, I probably saw this about ten years ago, and I don't know if it was just a wrong frame of mind, bad night, what. I found it boring a little bit back then, but once I watched it for this again, and I was actually paying attention to it. Yeah, I was, I was happy to see people I recognized. Uh, like Ernie, like Tony Todd, like Byling, like John Polito, people I knew and recognized, even Michael Massey, who uh, unfortunately is the gentleman who killed Brandon Lee. Yeah, I, I recognize all these people, and it was really good to see them on the screen again. No, no, it's got a, a really decent supporting cast. Even, uh, God, I can't even remember the guy who played uh, the uh, pawn st store owner. Uh, that, John Polito. Yeah. He he, I mean, I he's been a, a character actor in many many films, and it's weird. I was when I watched the film, I just gotten past the portion in the graphic novel where that that sequence occurs, and that actually does occur in the graphic novel the way it's portrayed in the film. Other than the pawn store owner gets killed in the graphic novel, and he lives yeah. in the film, uh, and I went, well, that was distinctly different, and and that's because so he can inform Top Dollar of you know basically shit's about to hit the fan, and that you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess give 
you know, a, a, another element for top dollar to kill him needlessly just for the sheer sake of entertainment purposes. Exactly. You know, one thing that I really liked about this film back in the day and uh, something that I still appreciate to this day is the soundtrack. <laughs> the soundtrack was amazing. I loved the soundtrack back in the 90s when this film came out. And, you know, from Stone Temple Pilots uh, and everyone else, uh, and what did you think of the music in the film? Yeah, I, I agree. I recognize some of the songs again because this would have been coming out right when I was in the uh, just got out of high school, and yeah, I recognize like Stone Temple Pilots and a lot of the other uh, songs and ever, the artists at least in one way, shape, or form. And yeah, I found it very, very good, very fitting for this type of a movie, uh, especially coming out of that era. It sort of all blended together because I thought it the look of the movie was very different um the raininess the darkness um all that was very very different uh but it was very fitting for the time and so was the soundtrack i agree it, it the music in this a score whatever uh it was very very good i must agree nine inch nails i believe was another one i think rollins band was another part of uh the soundtrack so yeah a lot of bands that i'm very familiar with from the mid 90s yeah, and you just brought up another look that was, you know, very dark and everything like that. That was another thing I was taken back by the graphic novel is like they live in a house in the country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and you know, there's a lot of like nature involved in the graphic novel that does not exist at all in the film. And once again, was that necessity that they just, okay, we need to evolve this and change locations or was that actually – that was at the intent from the get-go. I, I, you know, I could not find anything specifically stating what the first draft or the shooting draft of the film was prior to Brandon Lee's death uh, and compared to what it evolved to be after his death where they just had to make do. I, I'm just one of those that it just looked very mid to late 90s and how everything was sort of transitioning to sort of darkness and um, I don't, out of the... I don't know, the neon of the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, it just got very dark and it looked very familiar to me because I think a lot of people were dressing and starting to wear a lot of more black and more denim and things of that nature, or even the uh, trench coats and things of that. At least in my neck of the woods, it just looked very, very familiar with the way people were looking and the way society was sort of turning at that point. So that's why I thought they were probably intending to go that route and pulling the darker parts of the uh, graphic novel is a uh, sort of a premise for their dark uh, film status in this one. All right. Well, you brought up something that that was something that I wanted to kind of bring up is this, is this film so uh, by its look, so dated and stuck in the nineties, if you will, that the, because there is a look to it, and it's a look that you saw in about a hundred different films. And 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 the Crow is not the one who created it either. I mean, it, it existed prior to the Crow, but it runs throughout the film. It, did did you feel that the film doesn't translate to a modern as well to a modern audience, especially in light of the fact that they're trying to develop a remake? Yeah. I again, maybe it's just I'm skewed because of that's the era I was in my late teens in. Um, I, it seems very familiar to me now, whether I sort of, I don't know if it would help modern day or be looking the same modern day, but then I stop and think about the movies and things that have come along the way. You start looking at the dark Knight movies or the uh, Chris Nolan movies with Batman or the dark Knight, even the newest Batman movie. Some of the other, 
Marvel TV shows, like I say, Daredevil, a lot of these things all seem to feel the same in terms of a dark setting, maybe not as dark as the crow, but yet they like to use dark colors or blacks or dark reds, a little bit of dark Navy. Um, just, I, I just am one of those. I think it would translate to the modern audience, um, in a good way, in a positive way, in a accepting way, because I think it has stood the test of time from its look. Cause there are a lot of things, like you said, that it have been the same way through the years. So I just don't think anybody's going to say, yeah, it's only a 90s look the way we would look at some 80s movies, like I say, a Fast Times or Ridgemont High and say, yeah, that's definitively an 80s movie. <laughs> this one, I don't see that you could definitely say, yeah, this is purely a 90s movie. Well, it's interesting you say that because I watched The Crow and you mentioned Daredevil the series and I didn't watch the Daredevil series, but I saw the Ben Affleck Daredevil. Uh, the same oh, yeah. weekend that I watched the crow and just cause it came on, not cause I wanted to <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna preface that, but you know, I, I was wa- kind of like the visual elements is, you know, you got bullseye and a trench coat, uh, you know, leather trench coat, a lot of people running across buildings, similar to the crow, uh, sequences uh, sometimes in the rain, similar to the crow, uh, you know, daredevil always kind of gargle gargoyle, like sitting on roofs and things like that, that I thought there was a very similar visual element that was brought into that film that really was a throwback to what, what had happened in the crow. And they're both kind of comic book related. Yeah, I, I can see that point. Yeah. But like I say, I, uh, it's the way I just see a lot of the comic book and even other action movies uh, in this day and age where everything seems a little bit darkish. So it, I think I'm again, I don't think it was started with the crow as you I agree with you on that. But I just think it's part of a trend that moved on throughout the years. And this is just one of those higher points of how they used it in a style point of view. Anything else you want to talk about? I did. I I really, really wanted uh, just to talk about how I appreciated Brandon Lee's performance of Eric or a.k.a. the crow in this movie. I was just taken aback watching it this time by how good he really was. And I was sort of sad that he passed away in the making of this movie because I think he could have been a very, very good action star. Sort of. I don't think he would have gotten to the Dwayne Johnson level. But I think he could have made a lot of movies, uh, either action movies or action type comedy movies, because he had a very, very distinctive look or facial expressions. Let me that's what I wanted to say. And I sat there and watched it and I go, Jesus Christ, Heath Ledger stole this from him. (laughs) And I looked it up on the Internet if I was right or wrong or if people would agree or disagree. And there are all kinds of pictures and posts and reddit pages talking about how heath ledger possibly took his look for the joker from brandon lee's the crow character and it just seems they were almost identical and i was like jesus he probably did set a precedent for the way certain comic book characters were going to be presented into the future and i i again was even more sad when i started reading about it and watching it because I was like, this guy could have had a really good career. I mean, I loved watching his dad's movies from time to time. And I think he probably would have had a pretty solid career. Again, very sad about it. I think he was extraordinary in this one. 
I agree with you. I mean, I had seen Brendan Lee's films prior to The Crow, Rapid Fire, and Showdown in Little Tokyo. I can't say that they're standouts by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. They were not great films, but I definitely saw with the limited screen time he did have much more acting potential in this film than he displayed in the previous films. And this was this was on a trajectory to possibly be a big hit. I mean, it mm-hmm. was that you were getting a lot of, you know, kind of a lot of comic book films starting to be ad- uh, adapted for the screen. This was getting a lot of press uh, when it was announced that it was going into production. And then the tragedy of it obviously made it probably a much bigger deal, even though it didn't make a, trem- I mean, by today's standards, you know, $50 million is, you know, nothing. It's that's, that's a, a decent weekend, but you know, back then, fifty million dollars, especially in a film that was made for I think less than twenty, you know, that's that's a success. You know, and they, they and they did spin this off and tried to make some sequels of it. I mean, far, far, far less uh, capable sequels. And there was a television show that had the same character. In my understanding, kind of stretched out that the graphic novel story over an entire season, um, but. It's, you know, it, it, it is a property that is viable and the, the graphic novel and comic books that have followed it, uh, that, you know, continuing these adventures, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a cult following. And I think that if you had the right actor, you could potentially, this could be a viable project in the future. Hopefully once again, they, they adapt the main story as it was written and leave it. Don't develop it for a series of movies. And I think that's one of the, the faults. This is one of those films where you started making sequels and the sequels kind of t- tarnished the uniqueness of the first film yeah. and and grew, grew to l- less appreciate them. I think I bailed. Uh, the last one I saw was the Kirsten Dunst one, which was the third one. I never got to the Edward Furlong one, thank God. Um, <laughs> and... And, and I never watched the series, but, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, there, there's, th- I still think this is a viable project. I think it's, it, it was a very, very decent film. Yeah, I, I agree. It is very, very good for what it is. And, uh, it definitely has stood the test of time. And I still think in the right hands, this property could become something special. And like I say, I'm just sad that Brandon wasn't around to, uh, flesh it out into maybe future movies. All right. Well, let's wrap it up and let's put our ratings on it. All said and done on a scale one to five. Do you consider the film a bad one or would you give it a high five? I wouldn't give it the high five, but I'd give it a high four to four and a half, probably four and a quarter. I really liked watching it and I'll probably end up watching it more regularly now. Um, it really hit with me how good he was. And I found just having a very straightforward storyline from start to finish. It's something that's much needed in movies <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> Jeez. And, uh, they, unfortunately probably his death is something to help, uh, be a proponent or a supporting system to make it that streamlined, but damn, it was fun to watch. And I really, really liked it. Yeah, I agree with you. This is not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. It has flaws and some tremendous ones. Uh, but ultimately, I think the visual style of it, I think the the story of it, it's it works. You know, it doesn't try to become overly complicated. 
as I said, I appreciate the graphic novel. I would have been curious to see an adaptation of the graphic novel to kind of do a, almost a Godfather part two, you know, flashback sequence to the love story between Eric and Shelley. I think that would have been interesting and certainly probably would have appealed to a lot of female uh, audience members uh, to see that kind of romantic uh, aspect of the film because that there's no romantic aspect to this film all at all. It's just a revenge pick. Um, but for a revenge pick, it works pretty well. Uh, it, it doesn't delve too far into the supernatural that, you know, it, it alienates people and just becomes unbelievable. Uh, it's just, it, and it's, and it's encompassed in one film. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's not implying other things as, oh, Eric's coming back to get revenge now against somebody else. You know, it's, it's, that's what I like it. So uh, I will too, I too will give it, I'm not going to go four and a quarter. I'll just go four. But yeah, I think four stars. I really, I hadn't seen it probably in about 15, 16 years. And I, I really enjoyed it, you know, watching it again. I, I it was a it was a nice, easy watch. It, I, I didn't remember certain actors in it, but I pretty much remembered the story. Uh, and I was in the process of reading the graphic novel when I watched it, and I was immediately taken back by how different they were. Uh, but I, I, I wrote it off as well. It had to be. Yeah, that was the only way they were going to get it completed. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, that is it for our review of The Crow. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comment section. Uh, and for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com, please rate the film one to five stars on that page as well. If you've enjoyed today's review, please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHN Podcast Network, where we have many, many more film reviews from yesterday, yesterday today, and beyond. Well, until next time, I'm Patrick. And I'm Chad. And this concession stand is now closed. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The song Rock On Brudda is brought to you by Marwan Nimra at natintine.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Movie House Concessions, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs>